loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Michael Wall. Michael is best known for his role as one of the original designers of Apple's legendary film editing tool, Final Cut Pro. That software enabled millions of people to raise their voices and tell their stories. He's also an award-winning filmmaker himself with decades of experience across genres, styles, and formats. His films have also won awards and acknowledgments at many film festivals and competitions. He's also maintained a career as an author and educator, penning a a dozen books on the art and craft of filmmaking, taught at UCLA's Grad School of Film and TV, and has spoken at film festivals and conferences including Sundance, South by Southwest, and NAB. His training courses are among the highest rated at askvideo.com. Michael is also a very busy person, the principal baker at Burlesque Buns, a bakery focused on traditional Jewish breads and pastries, and the founder of Bread Heels, a culinary creation club which seeks to break the boundaries that divide us through the shared joy of breaking bread. Today, we'll mostly be talking about his upcoming uh, memoir, In Herschel's Wake, about the death the life and death of his father and their relationship. Welcome, Michael. Hello there. Happy to be here. You've done a lot of different things in your life, and I can see where they sort of converge in your book in the sense that I found it very, very cinematic or visual. Mm-hmm. I, I really uh, felt I entered that experience of yours going to uh, bury your father and I thank you for that. That that uh, really drew me in very very deeply. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I with a filmmaking background, uh, one of the one of the struggles I had writing this memoir, my editor was constantly telling me like, "This is not a script. It's not a movie." You know, t- take out a lot of these <laughs> details. You know, I was describing every tiny little moment as I recreated the scenes in my mind and. Uh, It was, uh, you know, my editor really helped me turn that, leave a little bit of room for the reader to make their own visuals. That's very, very funny because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I've written a novel and I gave the first draft to my wife and uh, she read it and she said, I know exactly how everyone feels, but where are they? (laughs) (laughs) Between the two of us, we have the whole picture, right? <laughs> I had to go back in and add a whole bunch of those details you had to take out. Right, exactly. but, but let's start with, you know, um, of course, I've interviewed many people about things they've written or films they've made about a death in their life. But I find your experience with your father so deeply unique. Can you start by sharing with the the reader something about his end and and um, 
you know, the heart of the book, which is his burial and kind of how that fits in with your life story with him. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to know where to start, uh, you know, that. But I mean, my father was a very um, charismatic but very troubled man. He never really found a place in the world where he was comfortable, I think. And, um, and he was very uncomfortable as a parent. And he... Uh, struggled a lot to be a father and really was much, much more comfortable being a friend. And so there was a period when I was a teenager, mostly when he and I were very, very in sync because he was like, cool, I've got this playmate. And I was like, <laughs> cool, I have this playmate. But as I got older and sort of appreciated or, or was aware of what I was lacking in a parent, uh, that that our relationship sort of drifted apart and um, or we drifted apart. And so and he bounced from job and location. He was really uh, wandering most of his life and um, had wound up living on this remote Caribbean island. Um, he actually was in several different islands, but at the time of his death, he was on an island called St. Eustatius or Stacia in the Netherlands Antilles. And this is a really tiny island of a couple thousand people. And um, and I mean, you know, I don't know how much detail to go into at this moment, but, but you know, I, I basically he died suddenly. Uh, uh, he, I mean, he was sick for a short time and then uh, I was not in touch with him at the time and got a message from a stranger basically saying, hey, your father's dead. And I was really thrown and and, you know, unsure of how to process that uh, because I felt like. I kind of felt like I'd written him off a little bit, but I also suddenly in that moment was like, well, wait a minute, I'm not done resolving this conflict. Mm, yes. <laughs> and that uh, part's not unusual that, yeah, that in a right. troubled um, parent-child relationship, you don't even realize you're holding out hope until it's gone. Yeah. You know, that the person will, will kind of show up for it, yes? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, yeah, you know, and I sort of thought I had, I thought I was done talking to him about it. I had tried many times to sort of say my piece and, and, you know, get his response to whatever disappointments I had. And that never went very well. And um, I sort of thought I was like, okay, I'm done looking for response. And then suddenly when he's gone, I was, you know, filled with the sense of, but wait, I, you know, there's more to say. Well, also, the the thing that stood out to me about him as a psychological being, as opposed to all the adventuresomeness and, you know, all of those things he did in his life, is just he didn't seem to believe that he could actually improve relationships or, you know, that, that things could go better in his connections with his intimates. Seems like he did fine with people further out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was very good at, uh, you know, at a, in a crowd. And, you know, he was very good in a small crowd and uh, he was well loved. And in fact, one of the things that was so confusing when my siblings and I went to this remote island where he was living was everybody there loved him and was so effusive with their praise. And I mean, of course, he had just died. So they were being kind, but it was more than that. There was this tremendous uh, sense of like admiration for this guy that me and I have a, a sister and a half brother and the three of us met together on this island and the three of us were just confounded by this we were like <laughs> how could be true <laughs> yeah, who is this guy that you and he yeah. had actually changed his name uh because he was actually uh, uh on the lamb 
uh, and he was living on this island a little bit because he was hiding out. And uh, he had changed his name to his middle name, Joe. And he was he was a doctor. He was a pharmacologist. And uh, and so he was Doc Joe or Dr. Joe. And on this island, everywhere we went, it was all about Dr. Joe, Dr. Joe. And this especially weird that like, he, you know, this person who we didn't, you know, we were, they were describing this person we didn't recognize. And even the name was unfamiliar. It mm -hmm. was so disorienting. And yet, you know, we were faced with like, no, that was part of him. You know, he was this uh, uh, effusive, funny, smart uh, you know, engaging person. And I think it's just that when it got to his most intimate relationships, he was, uh, he didn't know he was, you know, he lived in a lot of pain, he lived in a lot of fear. And I think uh, he didn't know how to uh, expose that to his kids, certainly, and to his various partners. Yeah. You know, the other thing that was really with me as I was reading the book, um, I guess, I guess in my teens, uh, I could have been described as a hippie. You know, before other things happened in my life. Well, yeah. I was described that way, I described myself that way to me, right? And I was thinking about if if life hadn't taken a different turn, many people were doing what your father was doing, you know, um, smoking dope, throwing out the rules, doing it differently. Um, there was a, there was a, um, a quote, uh, I'm I'm in charge of me. You're in charge of you. If we happen to meet, great. If not, oh well. I'm mm -hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Sure. You know, uh, yeah. and he kind of lived his whole life that way, which I found, uh, wow. You know, I couldn't imagine my life having gone that way all the way through. He never matured, is how it felt. Is that how you see it? I think that's a really astute description. Uh, I, you know, he famously liked to talk about that if you woke him up in the middle of the night and asked how old he was, he would say he was 19. And mm -hmm. he said this with glee, like how he was so proud of this. And, you know, when I was 19, I thought that was cool. And when I was 29, <laughs> I was like, that's a little weird. And when I was 39, I was like, that's really weird. Right. And, you know, <laughs> what know, happened? He got frozen in time. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. also, I mean, in terms of like specifically to the hippie movement and the idealism of that time, I think, you know, he came to it a little late. He was, you know, he was born in 37. So, you know, and at the end of the 60s, he was already in his 30s uh, or, you know, basically. And, and so he was, I think, a little old and sort of felt like he had almost missed it. And so I think mm. he really because uh, he, he didn't really, he was very, uh, he was a, again, a pharmacologist. He was working at a, a shearing plow, I believe. I think he bounced around to a couple of drug companies, but he was working at shearing plow and he was very straight laced. Like he, uh, he told stories about doing experiments on rabbits with LSD and never dreaming of like, you know, when he was telling the story 10 years later, he was like, if only I could have gotten one of those vials, you know, what I could, have <laughs> you know, but I think at the time he was very, uh, you know, he believed in, you know, following the rules and he was very well behaved. And I think that when he finally dropped out, so to speak, in the early 70s, he was like, he felt like he had missed it a little bit and was sort of trying mm -hmm. to hang on to this idea as the rest of the world was sort of moving on from it. And and kind of keeping what I would consider to be um, the least contributive to a, a good life, keeping some of 
the least uh, useful and throwing out some of the most use, useful, which is um, a lot of people use, the, use that time to learn how to self-reflect, figure out who they were, um, cultivate deeper relationships that didn't follow all the rules. I'm a lesbian, so, you know, I came out during that time, for instance. Sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's so interesting how different people take similar experiences, not the same, obviously, but it just goes in so many different directions. And look at your two, two siblings in you. Yeah, right. We You've all, all gone quite different directions with the same dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's share a little bit of the book so people can get a taste of that. Can you read the part about um, being on your way there? Sure. I boarded the plane last through the door at the rear. Unlike the last one, this was a seriously tiny plane, five rows with one seat on each side, except for the last row where there were three seats together. I spotted the one empty spot in the first row behind the cockpit, separated from the cabin only by a tatty mauve curtain. I was relieved to get out of the hot island sun, but the claustrophobic cabin offered no protection from the thick, humid air. I made my way up the aisle and sat down, and then I fished around for the seatbelt. I found one half, but the other side was missing the clasp. I looked around nervously and observed that no one else seemed to have a seatbelt on at all. So I just sat there holding the unlatched belt in my hand. Then the pilot, a young local guy in his 20s with his uniform shirt unbuttoned a little too far, arrived and he shut the passenger door from the outside. Then he went around and climbed into the cockpit through a separate door. He settled in quickly, revved the engines loudly, and the, the plane jerked into motion. No announcements, no illuminated seatbelt sign, nothing. And after a short bit of high-speed taxiing, the pilot opened the throttle and we accelerated quickly. In a moment, we were off into the air, wobbly accelerating through the thermals rising over the warm Caribbean. I grabbed the seat firmly with both hands and looked out the window as we soared up over the crystal blue water. We banked hard to the left and I watched the tiny strip of beach on St. Martin disappear below us. I closed my eyes and fought to keep my stomach below my throat. The pilot swiveled around in his chair and yelled to us over the considerable noise of the plane. We get some weather now. No worries. Just a little bumpy bumpy. We'd be safe on the ground in 15 minutes. He seemed to recognize the woman sitting behind me and winked at her with a smile. Almost immediately, the plane began quivering and jerking in an unnatural horizontal motion. I looked out the window at the endless blue of the ocean and the continuous hue of the sky, and I searched for the line where they met out at the distant horizon. A few thunderheads were visible ahead of us, and I found myself wondering how close we were to the Bermuda Triangle. Still, despite the turbulence, this strange calm overtook me. If this little plane with its broken seat belts and distracted pilot did me in, no one could fault me. At that moment, I wasn't living on my own behalf. I was taking care of this duty so much older and bigger than me. I was honoring my father, honoring an ancient tradition older than God, one as old as humankind itself. No matter what happens, I felt clean, justified, worthy. Just then we hit another air pocket and seemed to fall a hundred feet in an instant. I blurted out aloud, whoa, and the rest of the passengers all remained silent. I smiled to myself, maybe it was all gonna be okay. And in a few minutes, we swooped down hard, banked left and then right, and I saw we were heading directly toward this volcano sticking out of the ocean, St. Eustatius. 
The pilot maneuvered deftly, cutting the engines to a quiet hum a moment before we gently touched down onto the tiny runway. Once we were on the ground, he turned around to the cabin and smiled and winked again at the one woman sitting behind me. We at station now, he said. May you all have a meaningful stay. It occurs to me, listening to you read it, that that's just such a, an apt metaphor for grief itself, that, you know, you're suddenly in this thing where the rules are completely different. Um, there's no seat belts. You <laughs> might hear an, hit an air pocket at any second. Um, you might die or you might land safely. You know, there's such a turbulence yeah. For many people to that experience and then to go into an actual physical experience that truly does embody that. I mean, none of the rules that we uh, go by for better or worse about how to deal with this time of loss applied in this situation at all, did they? Well, I mean, I think for anybody, when there's a sudden death, uh, you you find yourself looking for some way to make sense of it or to, you know, to looking for rules to follow. And I think that, um, I mean, I can talk more about how I think that intersects with religion, which was really profound for me at the time. But I think the sense of of confusion of of uncertainty of this this emptiness or this this uh, you know un, just uncertain i guess is the right word uh it really can feel so overwhelming and i think that that is one of the pieces of grief that I never knew was part of it. You know, I, I sort of understood the sadness and the longing or the confusion and the, you know, the, the, the sort of the after, but the, the moment when your breath is sort of knocked out of you is uh, mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. I wasn't anticipating. Let's talk more about that after the break. Cause I think that's such a, such a reliable, um, not universal, but nearly universal experience. Uh, just feeling unprepared and confused and just dropped in the drink in a way. Yeah. Lis listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, etc. And uh, to find Michael Wool, you can go to herschelswake.squarespace.com. It's H-E-R-S-C-H-E-L-S wake.squarespace.com. Com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. 
Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Michael Wall about his upcoming memoir, In Herschel's Wake. And before the break, Michael, we were kind of referring to the disequilibrium, confusion, emptiness, all those things that sort of wallop you. The other thing that stands out to me is it's such a physical experience, often, uh, grief. That struck me in my own grief, yeah. just how much it was living in my body, not in my, not in my head. And you were in such a disorienting environment, um, not to your dad, of course, because he lived there, but you didn't have him to, to help out with it all. Can you talk some about just what it was like to try to navigate, uh, you know, a, a, for one thing, a burial process that is nowhere similar to anything that happens here, right? Um, and and navigating it, I have to mention, with a sister you didn't see very often and a half-brother you'd seen a couple times in your life, you know, um, that's that's part of it too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so I, I can't speak to how universal my experience was. I think in a lot of ways it was very unusual, uh, but I think, you know, of course, other ways it was entirely universal, but the, you know, we were, so yeah, I, I my sister and I were not estranged but we were not close at the time we were not talking frequently it was unusual to to see each other more than once a year or so and uh my half brother i had only known as an infant or as a toddler uh when he was about three my dad divorced or my, my dad's second wife divorced him and left with the baby and i lost touch with him and uh you know, and a lot of the book talks about my feelings of confusion about that and, and you know, that that strange experience of having this person that's this close relative who I basically didn't know. And then we were thrust together in this really weird situation. And so the three of us, really these sort of odd, you know, compadres sort of wandering through this very challenging landscape of how are we going to deal with this funeral? And uh, so, yeah, this island had no 
what you would call funeral services. There was, we got there and we're like, so where's the funeral home? And, and, you know, <laughs> the cemetery? and they were like, yeah, there's not any of that. I mean, there was a cemetery, but we didn't use it. Um, and there was no funeral home. And we had to like, I mean, you know, not to steal all the details of the book, but like we had to build a coffin for our, you know, by ourselves. Like we had to <laughs> dig a hole in the ground. Like we had to clean the body ourselves. And, and all of this was sort of, you know, it dawned on me sort of, it cascaded. So like, I sort of didn't appreciate all the pieces that we were going to have to deal with, as well as navigating the petty bureaucracy of this island, where even, you know, even though there were very little rules about what we couldn't do, there were all sorts, there were still all sorts of paperwork and things we had to take care yeah, of. There were a lot of rules. You just didn't know what they were I guess until after you didn't do them. Right, exactly. <laughs> that's how it seemed from the outside. Right. So, you know, this, this, uh, you know, to the, to the point about like this uh, experience of, of how the grief is so physical and so, uh, and just how you, you feel it in your body. I think that in, in a large part, this, for this experience, there was so much logistics to deal with that I really didn't have a lot of time to be in my head. And that was a, in a lot of ways, a blessing. And like, mm. in, you know, in looking back on it, I was, I was really struck by how the fact that in modern American culture, we are so shielded from the majority of the, the physical mechanics of dealing with a dead person, you know, we just don't have to think about it. And I think that that's in some ways a, a, a disappointment or, it, you know, it's a, it's a missed opportunity because I think that, that having that physical activity is both a distraction, but it's not like a unhealthy distraction. It's a very immediate, you, you know, you are there doing it and the, the banality of it, the, the, you know, the, the, just the, the physicality of this experience of dealing with a, a person who has died, a, a, this, you know, 180 pounds of flesh that is no longer living. You have to do something about it. And like, it's, I, you know, again, I think during the moment of it, I necessarily, I didn't necessarily, I was not happy about that, but, you know, fairly soon thereafter, I was actually very thankful that that was the experience that we got to have. You know, it's interesting because my, uh, the, the loss of my first wife is totally different in the sense that we knew she was going to die for almost a decade. <laughs> she just kept not dying. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of preparation. We we thought through every everything, but the sense of having to deal. Therefore, we had decided we were having a wake. Her body wasn't leaving right away, uh, and then the the rest unfolded after her death. Like I drove behind. The, the people who came to get her body, I drove behind them. I came and watched her body burn. You know, I was very involved in the whole process. Yeah. And the other thing I would say about that is it makes death real. Yeah. Um, there was never, uh, you know, my two and a half year old never asked when she was going to come back. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, that was a fact. It wasn't theoretical. And right. I do think that's helpful in grief that you're not confused about that. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think I picked up in the book that, that actually seeing your father's body was important in that way. Yeah. I, I think it was, uh, I mean, he had felt so gone emotionally for such a long time for me that again, like my, I didn't expect that, 
the fact of his death would strike me so strongly. Um, but, you know, it did. And I think to, you know, the physicality of, of sitting there with the corpse was really, you know, I mean, it, it, like you're saying, it's like, it's, it's unambiguous. Like it is real. It <laughs> Very is real. Right there in front of you. And you can't, you can't hide from that or you can't deny it. The other thing, and, and after this little little bit, uh, I'd like you to read, read some more. But um, the other thing I was thinking is just because of my, uh, my life and, and um, how early I came out and everything, I've thought a lot about biological relationship um, versus chosen relationship. Mm-hmm. And so you all were kind of alienated from him. But you all immediately got on a plane and went to do all this. And um, to me, that's an incredible example of the power of biology, whether we like it or not, that that um, it didn't seem as if any of the three of you, how you were going to do it, a big question, but the fact that you were going to do it, not so much. Yeah, you know. It's funny that I, I'm one of the thoughts that I have is that I started writing this story actually first as a screenplay. I, you know, I'm a filmmaker. And, and when I came back from this island and told my friends that this story of what had happened, all of them were just like jaws on the floor, like, you have to make a movie of this. <laughs> and so I started working on a screenplay of it. And one of the pieces of feedback that I got in some of the earlier drafts was, why does he go? Like, you know, I, you know, I established this complicated relationship and then that the you know the father is dead and and the son chooses just unquestioning to go and and do it and i you know and i was sort of it it was a i was forced to sort of examine that why did i go why was Mm. it so unquestioning that i would and you know i i think that while there was a we weren't close there was, you know, I just somehow at some early age, it was in, in, it was imprinted on me to that you take care of the people around you, you know, you, and it was just like, I don't want to do it, but it's just, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I don't know. And, and I think that for, I think that's similar for my siblings, you know, it was just, it was involuntary really. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also sort of when, when I think um, often when we have a, a parent who's inadequate in some way, we want to do better. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, that's one way that can go is you kind of learn the value of certain things they didn't do. And one of them would be being responsible, you know, taking care of something like this. And you, all the three of you seem to share that in different ways. N- none of the three were, uh, it was difficult. You didn't want to do it, but it doesn't seem mysterious that you did do it. Yeah, I think it's funny. I, I, th- there's a way in which my dad's irresponsibility, and he was so irresponsible in so many decisions throughout his life, and you know, many that so significantly impacted you know his children negatively. Uh, like that irresponsibility, really, I think forced, I mean, I can speak for myself, certainly, but I think my siblings in different ways, too, it forced us to take on a compensating over responsibility. 
And like now as a parent myself, I am, and my wife uh, shares the same dynamic of being overly responsible. And we often have to sort of stop ourselves from, you know, over, you know, overprotecting or, or just <laughs> being helicopter or something yeah, of the exactly. sort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Sort of like, and like, you know, but it, it's almost like in reaction to his irresponsibility, I just, I can't control my need, my need to over control. And, you know. And, you know, I guess I would consider that a better mistake. <laughs> you know, if, you, I mean, if every parent makes a mistake, which yeah. is true, um, it's an improved mistake, <laughs> perhaps we could say. Yeah. Would you hear a little more from the from the book? Of course. Permission to dig, I asked. I thought maybe we could bury him at the old Jewish cemetery, but it's been closed. There's an old Jewish cemetery here, I asked. Ah, uh, Stacia's got a rich history, hun. <laughs> Sorry, Stacia's got a rich history, son. Luke winked, but didn't elaborate. Belinda suggested maybe we could bury him on the bluff near the inn, next to Eleanor. Who's Eleanor, I asked. Belinda's daughter. She died three years ago. He pointed to his midsection. Cancer. Oh, I'm sorry, I said. Then, sure, I guess. That was the first time I'd consider the question of where to bury the body. I wasn't entirely sure if my brother or sister might want to bring him to Florida where his parents were buried or to New York where we would be able to visit the grave. I tried to imagine what that would be like. I pictured the rolling hills of Mount Hebron Cemetery in Queens with its long winding rows of headstones full of familiar Jewish names, Stein, Baum, Katz, Bluestein. I imagined standing at a gravesite marked with my father's name, Herschel Wohl, on one of those hills crowded with the dead. I could feel the cold wind blowing through a gray sky morning, jetliners low and loud on their way into LaGuardia. I scanned my body for a trace of feeling. Was there sadness, loss, emptiness? But I felt nothing. I could conjure no feeling at all, just numbness. I pictured myself standing there as the world went round and round and the days went on and on and his absence felt meaningless, insubstantial, irrelevant. The road turned back to dirt as the town disappeared behind us and Luke outmaneuvered a few more goats by zigzagging onto and off of the bumpy shoulder without even slowing down. The trail curved around and came over a crest and suddenly the majestic blue of the ocean appeared before us, spreading out in every direction. Luke made a sharp turn and stopped at a fenced off driveway. He instructed me to get out and open the gate so he could pull in. I complied in silence. As I opened the door, a breeze hit my skin and I realized that there were tears on my cheeks. We made our way across the crumbling parking lot into the dining patio where a few of the inn's patrons were eating lunch. We sat down and Belinda delivered us each a beer and then sat with us. So um, I guess we need to buy a casket, I asked. The word casket suddenly felt bourgeois and pretentious in my mouth. I corrected myself, a, a coffin. Well, there's no store or anything like that, if that's what you mean. You'd have to go back to St. Martin or maybe down to St. Kitts, but that'd take a long time. Luke turned to Belinda. Maybe Reggie could help. What do you think? I, I don't understand, I said. What do people do? How could there be no funeral services anywhere on the island? For what? Luke barked. I don't know. Whatever it is they charge you $10,000 for. You don't want to embalm him, do you? Belinda raised her eyebrows. I don't know. Is, is that more sanitary? I mean, aren't there laws to, like, protect the groundwater or, or something? How am I supposed to know what to do? 
This isn't the States, she said calmly. You do whatever you believe is right. It's not that complicated. Why don't we wait till your brother and sister arrive, Luke offered, and then you can decide what you want to do. Here, he said, and he pulled something out of his pocket. These were in your dad's jeans when we found him. I took him to keep him from being lifted by the cops. He handed me three USB memory sticks, holding my gaze a beat too long as I took them and stuffed them into my pocket. You know, when I read that part of the book, I was thinking, is it going to make it less complicated to have three people deciding (laughs) 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 that aren't used to working on such a thing together? Oh, yeah. But But in a way, it sort of did. In a way, I felt like you sort of all rallied together to do the best you could. So no I one was know. in alone. <laughs> that's that's a, I, I'm glad it appears that way when you read this. Story. It may not have felt that way at the time. <laughs> you know, I think we we each had we each had different things we brought to it. I think we each contributed in different ways, and I think that um, you know. There was a lot of just passing the ball around, like, I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> Waiting uh, for someone to be certain of something. <laughs> there was another story, you know, that happened that I'm reminded of about that was we, you know, we were brought, we, when we went to the hospital uh, to get his death certificate, there was this question about whether to do an autopsy because they didn't know the cause of death. And they were, you know, and this doctor we were talking to was basically like, I don't know. We were like, what killed him? He's like, I don't know. It could be anything. And we were like, well, we want to know something. Like, anything. <laughs> yeah. He was like, well, to do an autopsy, we'd have to send the body to a different island or to the States or somewhere, you know. And and we were like, uh, uh, and none of us could decide. And it was really this, it felt incredibly, uh, in, you know, intense and just poignant that we had to make this decision about whether or not we would ever know what actually killed him. And it was one of these, it was one of the few moments of real conflict, I think, where the three of us, like none of us wanted to give a final answer. And we were really, I mean, we ultimately did not get an autopsy because the logistics of it were so complicated, but um, I think that, you know, all of us somewhat regretted that, you know, and, and you know, at least for a while. Hmm. And those things tend to play for eventually they fall into place in an overall context. But for some period of time after someone dies, all those little details kind of plague the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. We'll be back in a few minutes to talk more. Time for our second break and a chance for listeners to go find us. I'm at weatheringgrief.com. That's my website. Or the Good Grief host page has has, uh, links to everything about me. To find Michael Wall, go to inherschelswake.com. And Herschel's is spelled H-E-R-S-C-H-E-L-S. Back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com. 
com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Michael Wall about his memoir, In Herschel's Wake. And, um, you know... We haven't really talked about the title, but um, I, I can hear that two two different ways that our life is in the wake of our parents, uh, as on as if we're on the sea of their, you know, yeah. a little boat on their sea sometimes, yeah. and also the the you know sense of meeting after death. Um, maybe I'm only adding that because I did awake. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, I think it's intentional. And, you know, one of the another uh, facet of my father was that he was uh, he was a writer. I mean, he was uh, you know, he spent most of his adult life uh, struggling to write this incredible novel, this, you know, what turned into like six tombs of thousands of pages of the great American novel. But he was, a, you know, a literate, a incredibly literate reader. And one of his very favorites was Joyce. And I tell a story in the book about him turning me on to Finnegan's Wake, uh, you know, at 15 stone, him reading me passages and it just being like the most glorious experience. And so hmm. being able to reference, you know, I mean, obviously I'm not, the, the book is no Finnegan's Wake, uh, you know, and I'm no Joyce, but it is a, uh, it is to to be able to have a little nod to that. I felt like was a was a kind thing. And also, you know, you did um, really integrate his love of literature into the titles of the chapters. I won't give too much away on that, but it would be obvious to the to the reader. Um, yeah, I, I tried to pick. So, I mean, it's no problem giving it away, I guess. But you know, each title, each chapter is titled after a book. Uh, many of which were great literature, some of which are more obscure. They are mostly, not 100%, because I tried to make them match the content of the chapter, but they're mostly books that he specifically, you know, turned me on to or, you know, uh -huh. books that were meaningful to him and me. Yeah, kind of secondary connection. Yeah. <laughs> Connected through literature. Yeah. You know, I, I've been uh, thinking a lot over the last few years about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, the ways in which our our traumas pass down 
to both genetically and experientially to generation after generation. And so it stood out to me that your father actually said we're fate. He said something like we're fated to be bad fathers. You know, my father was a bad father. My grandfather was a bad father. He sort of accepted that as a given. But I was thinking there's some trauma there, right? There's some some passed down legacy of of inability to to parent and i wondered what what your thoughts are about that do you connect that i mean i i could connect it with some historical events for sure well uh, look, i mean there i i can say a lot about it i mean just first of all one thing that i think is an important distinction uh what he actually his his quote and it was something he repeated more than once was we're a lineage of father haters. I hated uh, my father. My father hated his father. Of course, you're going to hate me. Is what he said. And that's so, that's that's much more accurate. I'm glad yeah, you uh, I'm glad you corrected me. <laughs> well, and you know, and now being a father myself, and and the truth is, in many ways, I really could never have even imagined becoming a father uh, until after my father died, and not his death. I think as much as me learning how to forgive him is really what enabled me to move forward with my life and and find and meet my wife and and now build this incredible family but like that experience of father hating it was like i was i was taught from you know unconsciously at some level that that's just the way it is that you and my i think my you know i know that my grandfather my dad's dad uh you know hit him like i mean a corporal punishment sort of thing and i think that that was largely you know appropriate at the time if that's the right way to put it well it was it was, it was socially time. accepted yes right <laughs> yes not appropriate but you know yes it was, and but i think that um and my father i think was a was a nonconformist that like i said earlier felt the need to conform very very strongly until he finally resisted that you know all at once and blew up his whole life but so I, I've thought an awful lot about that history and how I don't want to repeat it. And I need to be able to, you know, find a way to parent differently and to allow my children to interact with me differently uh, than I did with him and, and beyond. And, and really, I, I take all of it to this feeling of finding forgiveness for him mm. that all of his, much, much of his bad behavior, I mean, some of it was maybe just selfishness or I don't know, you know, ego driven, bad decisions, but like he was, uh, he, he was mostly in pain. Like most of his bad decisions were just, he was living with so much, uh, fear and he, his whole life was this battle against some unspoken, unseen force. And, uh, you know, I mean, he was born in 37. He was Jewish. He grew up as a young kid with the Holocaust going on. His parents, he had, you know, he didn't, his parents were not directly impacted, but many people in the community were. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and it was, it was present. And there was this denial, you know, in order to uh, uh, survive growing up in the 50s, I think there was an incredible uh, push to assimilate. And he did. And, and my mother did in different ways. But that, you know, that uh, this fear of the, you know, the the risk of being Jewish as this uh, vulnerability that is that you can't escape, uh, you know, is, I think, an incredibly terrifying 
uh, feeling. And I, and I certainly have that feeling. Like, I mean, there are times when I feel that sense. And I think that for him, that was that much more immediate. And I think for his parents, it was, you know, that they actually left, you know, Eastern Europe in the time of the pogroms. And like, it was, it, you know, there's this historic generational trauma. I mean, just tremendous, horrifying trauma that yes. colors every part of that family experience passed down through generation. And, um, and again, I mean, I, my hope is that I put so much energy towards trying to forgive him and to find love for him and to look past the things that hurt me, the decisions he made that I regret, but like to try to, to, to not pass those feelings on to my children. Hmm. I'm thinking of a, of a very wise um, teacher that I've spent some time with a few times, Dan Siegel, who... Oh. Um, uh, basically, I don't know if he did the study or quoted the study that um, there is not really a, um, a a connection between bad parenting and being parented badly. There is a connection between making sense of your childhood and your parent and parenting well. Wow, that's neat. Um, so you're not, your, your dad seems to me to have acted as if he was doomed. He couldn't make, he just, you know, either he had to toe the line and not be himself or he had to smash it all, <laughs> you know, but actually there's a third alternative that it seems like you're embodying. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying every day. As best as you can in any given day. It's yeah. easier to see how you've done it. When you're, you know, I'm out of daily parenting. It's hard yeah. to have perspective when you're, when you're doing it every day yeah. <laughs> and not sleeping and all yeah. that. <laughs> Let's have you share one more, one more piece from the book, if you will. All right. I awoke with a panic and grabbed at the ring of icy cold sweat around my neck. My eyes sprung open and I stared at the ceiling above me. For a moment, I couldn't place where I was. The smell of the place and the thickness of the air and the constant shrill pulse of crickets were all foreign and unexpected to my confounded brain. After a moment, my eyes came into focus and my ears registered what they were hearing. My nose recognized that familiar mix of decaying paperbacks and years of pot smoke, and it all came back to me. I was on a tiny island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in my dead father's bungalow where he lay in a morgue somewhere waiting for me to put him in the ground. There was no light in the room except for a sliver of moonlight coming in through the window and so it took my eyes a few more minutes before they could transmit any meaningful data to my brain and they fixed on this lightning bolt shaped crack that ran across part of the ceiling. I realized that I was looking through his eyes seeing exactly what he had seen. I scanned the bungalow, the blue moonlight peeking through the window, flickering slightly as the window shade wavered in the breeze. The broken closet door, the, the way the paint had begun to curl and flake off at the corner where the wall reached the ceiling. I turned and eyed the nightstand with his copy of Kim and the note card with that childish scrawl reading, God is good, still right there where I had left them, where he had left them. I tried to imagine him lying there just a few days before. He was here, right here, lying there just as I was then, in all his suffering, his gut aching, his brow burning in fever, vomiting blood, choking on his own blood. I bolted upright. I was lying in his bed, 
the bed where he lay dying, the very bed where he was vomiting that blood, my head on the same pillow where he was sweating and slobbering for those last few weeks. We didn't even know what it was that killed him, probably some tropical microbacterial hypercontagious and untreatable disease. And I was lying in his bed. I jumped to my feet and stared down at the mattress, the impression of my body visible on the blanket. My heart pounded in my temples. Did, did they even change the sheets? Why would someone have even made the bed? And how well could they even clean around here? I was hyperventilating. I tried to calm myself. I needed to go back to sleep, but I, I took a towel from the closet and placed it over the pillow and put another one down in the length of the bed. And I lied back down on top of the towels and crossed my arms across my chest so none of my skin was touching the contaminated surface. I tried to breathe slowly and practice my meditation. Breathe in, breathe out, relax my feet, relax my ankles. Why did we decline the autopsy? What was I thinking? Jesus Christ, I was lying in his bed and I was going to catch whatever it was that killed him. I was wide awake. There was no way I was going back to sleep. I flipped open my phone to check the time, 2.22 a.m. I could hear Toby breathing restfully across the room. I made my way over to the laptop, carefully tiptoeing around the stupid piles of books that were everywhere. I was still breathing too heavily, but I tried to keep quiet as to not to wake Toby. I had to talk to someone. I had to reach out to someone. What if I had contracted a rare fatal disease? That bastard was trying to take me down with him. <laughs> I, I think two things hearing that. One is there's a whole book about anxiety as an aspect of grief. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that really embodies that experience quite a bit. Yeah. And and also just that I don't and I don't 100% agree with the statement people die the way they lived. Sometimes people surprise you, right? They they um take a turn towards the end of life. But I think your father truly died the way he he lived. Everyone else faced the consequences in a way. It was shortened over. He kind of <laughs> he kind of got out, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does that ever come to your mind that in fact he he kind of he was true to form all the he way did. through? He was. I mean, I think that you know he uh, he lived lightly in a way. He lived on the earth very lightly. He had he didn't have a lot of possessions. He never had much money. He never had much of anything. He never had much connection to people. He was always very loose, and I think he sort of slipped out relatively easily because of that. Hmm. Not, not what I, uh, if I die the way I lived, it won't be that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and of course, he just left a giant mess for all of us to clean up after him. I mean, exactly. Know. But not, uh, you know, not a huge estate that had no will or, you know, there are different kinds of messes. That's right. That's right. Um, you kind of, you went, you took care of yeah. what needed to be taken care of and, it sounds as if all evolved in some way after that. Yeah, I mean, I think that it absolutely we all evolved and have grown in, in dramatic ways since his death. And in a lot of ways, it's undeniable that it was a, a necessary positive for all three of us to, to be able to move on with our lives. Mm, amazing. Well, it's time for us to say goodbye. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for being with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real joy.
Good. And to find Michael Wall and his book, you can go to herschelswake.com. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again.